You ready, Gene? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> I'm Brandon Katz. And I'm Gene Bentley. And you're listening to Must Watch Netflix Edition, a conversation show about all things Netflix. And today, I'm very excited because we are joined by founder of What's on Netflix, Casey Moore, to discuss two big picture topics. First, basically, how Netflix operates in the UK, where Casey is stationed, and outside American borders, as opposed to here in the US, where me and Gene are, and how kind of the, the strategic differences are going to surprise a lot of you in, in several key ways. And second, the new content sensation Netflix and other players seem to be embracing lately, which are these colorful, stylish, global skewing crime thrillers in the vein of Tarantino in the lake. So Casey, welcome on the show, man. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Good. Big fan of the show. Appreciate it. So we're particularly excited to talk to you today because this episode actually kicks off kind of a four episode run where we're focusing on the macro strategy and happenings at Netflix. So in addition to this, upcoming episodes will dive into Netflix's push in original films, the most important Netflix original films ever. It's kind of gravitational center in the awards economy of Emmys, Golden Globes and Oscars. But first, Netflix US versus Netflix UK. Casey, you get to kick things off, which we appreciate. Uh, so like I said up top, many American viewers don't really realize that many of our basic broadcast channels aren't really a force overseas, and so much of the streaming entertainment you thought was exclusive to one streamer here in the U.S. is anything but exclusive overseas. So for example, Star Trek Discovery here is on CBS All Access, which is now Paramount+, Plus, while something like The Good Place was an NBC broadcast original in the U.K., correct me if I'm wrong, but both actually arrive weekly via Netflix when they were airing, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, there, there's a bunch of uh, US TV shows that come over in that format, and often they get split between uh, Netflix, Amazon, or you know, as Disney Plus Star is now the case for the for most a lot of the ABC shows, for example. Um, but yeah, yeah, they don't have broadcast outlets out here, so it makes sense to sell it to a streamer. And often the case that Netflix has has traditionally been the one with the biggest pockets, so that's where they've gone. Um, yeah, bit of Better Call Saul is is probably one of the earliest big examples of that, I would say. Um, and that, that obviously still comes uh, on a weekly basis here. So building off that in relation to kind of the fragmentation of where everything actually gets delivered, what is one of the biggest differences here in the Netflix US versus Netflix UK? And how does that change the equation for viewers? Oh, man. Uh, so the biggest thing in the US is is obviously the slow trickle of licensed content leaving the, the service. Um, Obviously, the big networks are pulling back. A lot of the movie contracts are pulling up. So I think anyone coming on to Netflix UK uh, nowadays will be surprised of how much licensed content we still get. Um, we still get a lot of the Fox library. We still get a lot of the Warner Brothers library coming every month. Uh, you know, I've just totted up how much is coming to Netflix U UK on uh, the first of the month versus the US. And the US is like maybe half a dozen licensed shows and movies, whereas UK right now, it's it's few dozen. So yeah, I think the licensed story is is one that's well well covered on the internet. Um, but that that's what stands out here. But obviously, that's not forever. And that's where the Netflix originals come in to hopefully take over the mantle. Um, but the US is sort of like a few years ahead in, in that regard compared to the UK. So at the moment, if you're, you've got UK Netflix, you live in the best of both worlds, I think. I'm thinking about other shows that I, I know have been given um, 
extra life by their popularity in the UK and and elsewhere. Like I think about Riverdale, which was yep. <laughs> which is it's it's on Netflix in the UK, right? Yep, absolutely. Yep, Riverdale comes weekly. Um, I don't personally watch it, um, but that that's that's just a personal preference, I'm afraid. Um, but yeah, there's there's a bunch on um, on Netflix UK that just kept, comes weekly, um, uh, and then vice versa. Some things go in the other direction, right? So we've got a bunch of broadcast shows here, which goes on to America, um, and obviously they're not as big as American shows because British broadcasters just can't keep up with the sort of budgets uh, the US. Uh, US broadcasters have. So the biggest example there is uh, the Great British Breaking Show, um, which comes to you guys weekly, and it's easily as big in America as it is now in the UK, I think. Um, Mainly because it got switched between broadcasters over here in the last few years. Yeah, I would I would agree with that assessment too. I think about it's funny because the way that the past year has changed what kinds of shows networks are buying is really interesting. So you used to see all these great, you know, British crime drama. I think about like Happy Valley that aired on a broadcaster in the UK, right? Yeah, BBC, I believe, yeah. Yeah, and then it was a huge Netflix hit here. Mm-hmm. So all of these shows that that Americans used to find via Netflix. Um, some of the cable networks are buying up now. Like uh-huh. I've seen stuff go to like AMC and, and everything. And uh, that's just because of the past year and, you know, COVID uh, <laughs> and production issues and, and everything like that. Um, so yeah. that's a really interesting other way. <laughs> yeah. And that's beginning to happen to here. So, I, I mean, everything's fragmented where everyone's sort of in their corners, right? Where they have their own content that goes into their own boxes. Uh, and that's somewhat happening here, and and the, because of the BBC's uh, nature, as it's not a commercial entity, it's more of a, um, a public-funded uh, broadcaster. They're sort of restricted on the laws, um, but regulations have pulled back in recent years, so they can start doing like that. Um, so BBC iPlayer, I think, has become a much bigger uh, competitor over here, with BBC sort of keeping back their biggest hits for themselves, but also being able to license more content um, that you traditionally see on Netflix. Um, like they've, they've licensed a bunch of Warner Brothers content, um, but I think that was a tit for tat uh, where Warner Brothers got a bunch of BBC content um, for HBO Max, including like Doctor Who, uh, and then Netflix, uh, BBC iPlayer over here um, got, uh, what did they get? They got Pretty uh, Pretty Little Liars, and they also got uh, Fresh Prince too. So, yeah, it's 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 interesting to see where the where the where the boxes are stuck piling up for each of the streamers, and I think ultimately that Netflix is going to be pretty much a Netflix original channel uh, in the near future, unless it can strike some massive deals. But they seem to be more short term focused than that is long term compared uh, to building out your own content. So that's the way I would head. I'm particularly excited about it in terms of your tit for tat you just mentioned. Doctor Who on HBO Max because I had never seen it before and now I'm already on the Capaldi year so you know like I'm deep in the game I, I've crushed a lot of Doctor Who over the last few weeks which I'm excited about but uh in terms of the licensing and everything you, you just got into it a bit but I'd love to know your thoughts on one advantage you believe Netflix UK holds over Netflix US and one disadvantage that might go that way as well um yeah so I think I think the with, on the originals front, I think it's often hard to tell which shows are British, and I think we'll get I'll get into this in a little bit more in a bit. I, th- I think the idea of what a British show is nowadays is sort of morphed, um, because I look at a show like Game of Thrones, and the majority of that is filmed here in the UK or in Europe, 
most of the cast is from the UK, most of the crew is from the UK, and, and it's still considered an American show. And I think with the influx of American money into, into our productions, it kind of twists the idea of what, what a British show is. Um, but in terms of a disadvantage, um, I would say that the U Netflix US, uh, UK, sorry, misses out on a lot of the old licensed shows that Netflix U US still have. Um, so Grey's Anatomy is the big one, and that they're sort of already moved to their new home on Star. Um, but as I said in, in the beginning, the advantage is they still get a lot of the um, content from like Warner Brothers. So our, our movie library is awesome at the moment. Um, and I could give you a quick stat uh, that our, our library is roughly six and a half thousand titles compared to the US, which is 5,800. And that's been slowly declining. And Netflix UK is just going up. All right. So quick follow up to that. Is your room at the apartment that you just moved into covered in writing like a beautiful mind? Because you have to keep track of so many different Netflix-related library issues going on. It, it's, it's yeah, it is tricky. Um, it, yeah, it is tricky. But, but uh, you know, everyone's trying to do the same, right? So it's, uh, but it's getting easier because if, if Disney produces a show, you probably know that Disney's going to put it on its own service. So eventually this won't be a biggest problem as it has now. But tracking Netflix original is its own challenge because there are hundreds in development and they're often all over the planet. And some of them you won't hear about until two weeks before they're due to come out. I actually heard the most insane stat today. Uh, Netflix has one billion committed to projects that are in development or in production right now. Disney has 370 million. So the disparity, I mean, clearly that's that's an intentional uh, strategic move. Disney's be being very precise about what content it puts into development and whatnot. And Netflix, kind of like always, is throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks. But still, the disparity in size is is staggering considering all the, the content channels Disney has to fill. And Netflix really just has one central hub. Yes, exactly. And, and, uh, and a lot of Netflix's spend is on projects that really don't exist at the moment. Uh, whereas Disney's spend is all on, you know, I'd say relatively safe bets with their mm -hmm. own IP. Um, so that obviously puts a lot more risk, I think, on Netflix's spend. Um, but also you've got just a huge footprint of uh, just international shows, which Disney's going to have to uh, pick up on because of the regulations. Uh, I was just searching up today. Australia is, uh, putting in laws that uh, state that you have to spend 20% of all local revenue on content. The wow. EU wants 30% of all library to be local pro programming of each streamer. So I think it's Netflix's move into international is almost uh, legally, they have to do it as much as it is they want to, but obviously there are benefits to having local libraries to serve local audiences. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know that Canada has definitely had laws like that in the mm -hmm. books for a while. Um, they have to have a specific percentage of Canadian content on their air <laughs> at, yeah, at a certain time. And I yeah. think that comes back to what I was saying about Game of Thrones a little earlier, is that a lot of content now loses its local identity. And I think by putting these laws in, in place that suggest that you need to have British content on, you know, with a clear clear sort of visual that this is a British show and it doesn't muddy the water as such. And I think that's, that's where uh, something like Sky Rojo, which we'll come on to a bit, sort of does muddy the water because it's such a big production uh, for Spain. Um, so yeah, we'll come on to that in a bit. Yeah. And, and uh, interestingly, so m one of my best friends lives in South Korea and she has Netflix. Mm -hmm. um, 
and you look at that, but you look at the charts on Netflix in South Korea, and they're pre- it's pretty much all Korean content. They, yeah. they, the the um, American or the the more global stuff doesn't chart people. People use it to watch Korean content in Korea, which um, I think is really fascinating because I feel like that's not necessarily how um, people in other countries use it. No, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I was just looking at the UK one, and and clearly uh, UK centric content does the best so for example formula one and the one uh, which is the new dating um uh, drama are both at the top of the uk list where is genie in georgia which is an american show is still at the top there so it's clear that investment in content there does well at least according to the top tens we did actually interview star of the one hannah ware on a previous episode so everyone listening please go check that out so, Casey, uh, here in America, the streaming kind of small screen hierarchy in terms of audience is pretty much Netflix and Disney Plus in tier one, Hulu and HBO plus HBO Max and Amazon Prime in tier tier two. And then you got, you know, your Paramounts, your your Apple TV Pluses, your Peacocks battling it out in tier three for the most part. How mm-hmm. does that compare to the, sh- the hierarchy structure in the UK for streaming wars? Sure. So I put uh, Amazon Prime video and Netflix in the tier uh, a um, and then I'd go Now TV, which is uh, Comcast's effort with Sky over here. So that's their um, Now TV used to get split into movies, sport, and um, uh, TV. Um, uh, and then I would then put uh, BBC iPlayer alongside that. I would say, but apart from that, you're pretty well serviced over here with just those four. And then obviously Apple TV, if you want to watch the Apple TV uh, originals, but. As I say, you're pretty well serviced across those five, I'd say. We've talked about it now, but I am interested to kind of build on it. Netflix's number one advantage in the so-called streaming wars is their basically unrivaled years-long investments in global skewing, local language programming. And you mentioned all the requirements legally that are being put in place to make sure that happens. But even before that, Netflix was was determined to put up kind of content hubs in major areas across Latin America and Europe and Asia. Um, Now, with Disney Plus continuing to expand its availability overseas, HBO Max launching internationally this summer, how does Netflix maintain this advantage, which so much more competition entering the fray? So I I think... Clearly, the answer is Netflix originals, at least from the, what they're they're going for, um, and it and it seems to be investing in all sorts of projects. And as you say, seeing what sticks a lot of the time, I think they're giving a lot of projects that wouldn't get uh, greenlit anywhere else. Um, the, the you know the light of day, um, but eventually. I mean, I personally think that an acquisition of, or a merger of some sort has to be on the cards to stay competitive, at least in the US. Um, but clearly, I, I'm wrong because they keep growing. And that, <laughs> I guess that's all that matters. <laughs> but to that point, you wrote a great piece for What's on Netflix. Everyone go check that out at whatsonnetflix.com. Really interesting about kind of what the future of big moves could be for Netflix. I really enjoyed that one, Casey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's plenty. There's plenty out there. Um, I believe some of the smallest um, companies like Lionsgate and MGM are going to get s- snapped up because their their role in the future, which today, even today, we, you, we just got the announcement that these Disney just chopping up the their theatrical slates. Um, who knows where that's going to land? And I, I, I think the smaller streamers like Star uh, uh, is is just going to get left behind, unfortunately. 
it's a really interesting conversation to me. It's it's really interesting to talk about those those slight differences, but they kind of mean a lot in terms of the economy <laughs> of this content. Uh, it's really interesting to think about. Yeah, it's the, it's the strategy that ultimately dictates what we're seeing when we sit down on our couches and, and throw on the, the TV. So that's why I find it interesting. And Casey, I think you've done a great job of covering that for what's on Netflix. Uh, now, bo- both now and in the, the coming future, they have these very cool uh, Tar- Quentin Tarantino-esque crime thrillers that are uh, you know, global and international skewing. They're colorful. They're stylish. Now, the phenomenon isn't exclusive to Netflix because you got Gangs of Lud- London and McMafia on AMC. You got Zero 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 on Amazon Prime Video. But Netflix is certainly continuing to lead the charge. They got shows like The Serpent, which arrives on the U.S. Netflix April 2nd. They've got Sky Rojo, which is one or two in basically every Latin country. It's starting to really pop in Europe and the Middle East. Probably mm-hmm. going to chart in the next few days in the U.S., where did this trend originate from, do you think? Um, so I think it always starts with talent, right? Um, so, so for Sky Rojo, for example, the, I mean, Alex Pina behind Money Heist is behind it. So I think with his uh, output deal, I think White Lines was a bit of a miss um, that came out last year. But I think Sky Rojo is much more um, uh, akin to the Money Heist in the way that it, it grabs you um, from, from the start. But ultimately, as I say, it's 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 really about um, finding out what works in in individual countries. And I think the top tens obviously help Netflix for that. And they can sort of fill the void. I don't want to say that they're algorithm produced shows because I I think that's unfair. But I, I do think that it helps. Okay, so since both of these, the Serpent and Sky Rojo, Sky Rojo, whichever one's the correct pronunciation, are the kind of hot ticket items at the moment. I want to go around and hear what everyone thought about both shows, because this is going to be on a lot of Netflix charts, whether that be UK or US. Yeah. Should we start with Sky Rojo? Yeah. Casey, what what are your thoughts? Hit us. Um, yeah. So ultimately, I was a little bit disappointed in the end. Um, I had high hopes going into it because it was the first sort of big project from Alex Pena since Money Heist that was sort of not a hybrid show, because I think white lines sort of uh suffered because it was a half english half half spanish show whereas sky rojo started off is a full spanish show despite having an excellent soundtrack which is majority english um but yeah i i thought the visuals were awesome uh, i just thought the story has been stretched too far to to fill out two seasons where i think this would have been far more effective as a movie perhaps um but that's just probably my preference in having to sit down to watch another six hour um, <laughs> content binge when there's at least four shows a week coming out. <laughs> I have to watch. Yeah, I, I I would say, listen, if you if you've listened to this podcast before, you know, I freaking love Money Heist. It's so good. And, I, you know, the show has these really core hallmarks of, of a show from Vancouver Media, which is the, the Alex Pena's uh, production company. So it's mm-hmm. like voiceover, cliffhangers at the end of the episode, like really splashy action, a very specific color palette. And I too was very disappointed with White Lines. I just don't think it was a good or interesting show. I think this one is more interesting, but the subject matter, I, I just didn't like. I don't know. I feel like it's 2021. I don't need a show about like 
three hookers on the run from their pimp. It's just like, it just didn't do it for me. And it's really, you can see how much they tried to kind of tackle that in the way that they have this very feminist discussion about prostitution and about human trafficking and about how, you know, the 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 men who use these services of these women are like, well, I'm not doing anything wrong because I treat them well and I pay for their services. And they're like, well, if there wasn't a demand for these services, then, uh, you know, <laughs> we wouldn't be trafficked. Um, and, and like, that's really great. But ultimately, I just didn't, I just, it felt unnecessary. And I just wished, I just wished it were different. <laughs> you know, I kind of wished it were a different show. Yeah, I think it's hard to it's it's hard to walk the line of being sort of a comedy show while also having people of victims of sex trafficking as well. Um, so yeah, I I, th- I think if you if you like the tone of it, then I, I think there's a lot there for you. But I think I, I, I'm with you where it could be misconstrued quite a lot um, as to what they were yeah. going for. What do you think, Brendan? I know conflict makes for good podcasts, but I can't help but agree with you both. Gene, I, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the content focus. I think there's a far, far different, big difference between stylish and gratuitous. And Sky Rojo falls into the latter far too often throughout its running time. And without getting too deep into spoilers and rehashing what you guys said, I don't think it earns its cliffhanger conclusion whatsoever. The fact that it ended on an uncertainty after a very mediocre run of episodes, in my opinion, was frustrating to the point that I'm not going to be coming back for, for season two personally. Uh, yeah, I, I could, I, I probably would. Cause at the whole, the whole time I'm watching it, I'm like, I watched it all at once. First of all, I liked that the episodes were a half hour and that was a nice little benefit as opposed <laughs> to our 50 minute, you know, usual yeah. things where I'm like, guys, <laughs> we got work to do. We got a podcast to prep for. I yeah. can't be sitting here for hours on end. Exactly. And I the whole time I was like, I don't think that I like this that much, but it's also very entertaining and engaging. And I think you're right as far as like earning the cliffhangers because in Money Heist, the first two seasons were re-edited by Netflix to make them different seasons. So like if the the cliffhangers at the ending of those episodes felt a little false or it felt the pacing felt weird, that was kind of a result of that. This the the cliffhangers are kind of weird, but they were written that way. So I don't know. <laughs> All right. So then let's switch over to the serpent. Are we talking better, equal than, you know, worse than? What were your guys' thoughts there? Casey, let me hear it. Yeah, I thought I I actually thought this was a superb show uh, um, for a British uh, co-production, and it it aired over here in January. I'll just I'll just add. Um, so we've we've already had access to it for a while. Um, but yeah, I thought to hear uh, Rahim was absolutely superb in his role. I also like Jenna Coleman, who's obviously in Doctor Who, as we discussed earlier. I I, I thought the eight hour r- runtime was probably a bit too long, but I also don't. I I never felt like with Sky Roger that this is this is dragging on to just hold hold out the eight episodes or whatever I, yeah i really enjoyed it what do you, you think jane ah jinx you first <laughs> we're both just too polite <laughs> uh so yeah I, I think between the mauritanian and the serpent tahir, tahir rahim is just having a great year uh the serpent again comes to netflix april 2nd here in the u.s did i think it was an amazing show no but was it one far superior to sky rojo absolutely and two 
you know, tense and, and, and thrilling enough to engage your interest? Absolutely. I, I think it absolutely is a little bit too liberal with its time jumps. It will start in the present, flip mm-hmm. back to X amount of months before for literally a 10 second scene and then flip all the way back to the point where it's a little bit dizzying and jarring. But, you know, solid kind of serial killer-esque crime th- thriller that I, I thought dove into the psychology pretty well overall yeah i loved it i thought it was great um i loved the way it was shot i loved the costumes i loved the music i just loved the whole kind of production of it and i thought the story was very engrossing but yes i also was like the the time jumping was a little too much and i've said before in my life like "Ooh, i love a non-linear time structure Ooh, this is great i love this stuff and now that so many shows are doing it, I'm like, guys, let's pull back a little and think about how much we need to be doing this time jumping. It's kind of like being complicated for the sake of being complicated. And I don't know that that's very necessary, but I really loved it. I thought Jenna Coleman was fantastic. I mean, obviously, yeah, we know her from Doctor Who. She's great in Doctor Gu- Who. Guys, I'm, I'm sorry. I got to interject. I'm not going to lie. I watched all of The Serpent and didn't realize till you just said it now that that's clara oswald from doctor (laughs) who so like i'm gonna go back and now rewatch a couple episodes and be like oh my god her career's still going well i'm so happy she's she's great she's been great in so many things but i feel like this is very impressive um work that she's doing in this and i i really loved her in it she's great feel sorry for her character at all because i i really don't know how i feel about her character because on the one hand she was sort of dragged into this but on the other hand, she sort of chose to be there still. Um, and I, yeah. I, I realize there's an element of Stockholm syndrome probably set in. But I, yeah. I think that is like part of the reason that I really liked her casting because I find her very likable in general. Mm. She's got an uh, innocence but, about her. Yeah, yeah. And but then her character gets involved yeah. with something that is not right. And no matter how. <laughs> <laughs> how much you, how many backflips you want to do to justify certain things to yourself? Like, you know the difference between right and wrong. Yeah. And hello, <laughs> my my whole take on this, and I think it applies to entertainment across their board. Is there are only so many staring in the mirror, self reflective scenes you can possibly put on screen before it just becomes ridiculous. You have an opportunity to do the right thing and you don't do it. I don't care mm-hmm. how how self-pitying and self-loathing you look in that mirror shot. You know, you're not cutting it for me to get my sympathy. Yeah. And I, that's why I feel like she's great casting too cuz you do inherently want to sympathize with her because she is so likable but like sorry no. <laughs> not sorry actually. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> so yeah, so Casey, sorry, continue. Yeah, whereas I was going to say, on, on the other hand, Charles, I found completely um, yeah, unlikable from the get-go, and I guess that was the point. So, exactly. <laughs> so he, he did a exactly. superb job, I thought. Yeah. So now both of these, like I said, stylish crime th- thrillers that are kind of Tarantino, Nolan-esque almost in their use of time and everything. I- I'm wondering, Casey... Are these genres the type that travel well? You know, is this why something like the French language Lupin can chart in multiple countries that don't speak French? Because there's something inherently appealing about this genre specifically? Yeah, I think so. And, th- and there's also an element of um, what's being thrown up at the t- You know, some some things just catch, catch lightning that you just can't predict, um, I feel. Like Lupin, I thought, 
I looking into it, it didn't seem like it was going to hit the hit its stride, but then it just suddenly did. And I think all it takes is being well placed on that Netflix screen when you boot it up, and enough people to then pass it on and tell everyone about uh, tell everyone about it. And I, I think that's really hard to predict. I think you can make uh, a lot of decisions based on what content's worked for you in the past, which obviously Netflix is uh, sitting on a mounting of. But some things you just can't predict. Uh, and I, I, the Serpent, I feel, would do well because I, I know Americans are keen on their attractive serial killers. <laughs> yes, um, yes, we are. <laughs> a little bit too much for, for everyone else in the world to feel safe. <laughs> That's my response. Big sigh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm not sure about Sky Rojo. I think that the, the creators have already distanced uh, the, themselves on this one between uh, compared against Money Heist. I think they're, they're, I think it's a lot more niche and I think it's subject matter um, doesn't help it compared to Money Heist, which is more for, I wouldn't say for the family, but Sky Rojo certainly isn't for the family. I think it's the first time the content warning uh, across the top of Netflix nearly wrapped over into two lines. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I think it's just a, it's a case of sometimes it just has to sort of catch lightning and it, that's really hard to do, um, you know, predict. But in terms of catching lightning, it does feel that despite the binge method, which obviously doesn't create a sustained conversation like the weekly release, it does feel like Netflix sometimes benefits from word of mouth. You see something released on a Friday, it doesn't chart for the entire opening weekend, and that midweek, the next week, it's starting to creep up there. You know, you saw that with Lupin, which went from 10 to like 6 to 3 to 1, which mm-hmm. was over the course of like a week and a half, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from the binge all at once method. No, exactly. And I, and there's a lot of arguments to going weekly. I, fi- I think Amazon Prime has particularly made a, a compelling argument for doing it on their biggest shows, um, such as Stranger Things, The Witcher, maybe even Money Heist would get away with it. Um, because ultimately what it's going to come down to is who can win Friday every week. Um, but as you say, there's a lot of long tail um, on on these shows. And I think Netflix uh, thrives on that about giving a show or movie, you know, three, six, five days from last year. Who the, who the heck could have predicted that would, would turn into the global <laughs> phenomenon that it was, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. And th- but that feels like such an outlier, too, because it's really just like softcore, <laughs> softcore <laughs> porn from international softcore porn. <laughs> yeah, uh, but, that, but that one certainly just took took social media and, uh, uh, you know, it produced tons of articles surrounding it. And I think that all, it, a lot of it is just word of mouth. And I, uh, so that's earned media compared to, you know, bought media. And I think Netflix at the moment is still best when it comes to earned media for shows that you just wouldn't have predicted to be these big hits. I mean, they yeah. didn't even know what they had with Stranger Things. You know, they dumped that in the late summer in 2016 for the first season. And then out of yeah. nowhere, poof, phenomenon. Yeah, Ozark was exactly the same. I remember p- publishing previews for both of them and and no one else uh, publishing previews. And then all of a sudden our traffic went whoosh as we were the only ones that <laughs> caught on to it earlier. Um, but obviously, Smart. eventually that all catches up. So. So before we let you go, Casey, we want to know what would your three top three Netflix recommendations be in general? It can be film, TV, any genre. Oh man, uh, it's hard to not not recommend the Trial of Chicago Seven. I think that's probably the best Netflix original film they've ever released. Uh, don't at me. Um, and then <laughs> I, I would also give my thumbs up to Money Heist. I think that that is just such a superb show that I 
I never thought I would sit down to watch a Spanish show uh, from start to finish with subtitles, but here I am, and I, uh, and I love doing it now. Um, so I think that one really kicked that off for me. Uh, and then, hmm, and then a third one. I'd probably go with something relatively predictable and say Mindhunter. I just loved David Fincher's... Uh, um, oh, and... Yeah, speaking of David Fincher, love Devon Robots. If I can squeeze a fourth one, please. <laughs> there please? you go. Yeah, I like it. Do you have any, you know, after having watched Money Heist and and all of these newer shows, uh, do you have any foreign language shows that you really, really loved? Uh, well, I know Brandon loves Dark. I haven't yet <laughs> to sit down and finish all of it. I don't have <laughs> enough space on my wall <laughs> to finish that off. <laughs> Um, Which is understandable because that show is homework. It's just the best nerdy homework in the world, in my opinion. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I, I mean, there, there's probably loads if I actually sat down and think about it. And I think that's the big problem is when Netflix, when people say that Netflix hasn't got anything, is that it's hard to sort of go back through your memory uh, because there's so much all the time that it's, you know, it doesn't imprint as, as well in, in, in your mind. Um, yeah, it's true. I mean, that's that's like their whole thing in general. I would I would add Babylon Berlin to the conversation. Oh yes, as yeah. As far as yeah. Netflix originals go, yeah, yeah superb, so good. <laughs> All right. Well, if people need some help navigating the endless drop of new titles on Netflix, of course, we here at Must Watch Netflix Edition do our best. But Casey gets very in depth with it with articles every single day on what's on Netflix, and I just let the people know where they can find you on social media and find your website and everything. Yeah, we're, we're uh, what's-on-netflix.com. Uh, you can find me on uh, at Casey underscore underscore more. Um, and yeah, look forward to seeing you in the comment sections. Thanks, Thanks so much Casey. for joining us, Casey. We really appreciate it. And uh, just, you know, treat yourself to a drink and a nap because basically keeping track of 10,000 titles across UK and US on Netflix is, is enough to drive anybody crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a bit of a chore. <laughs> <laughs> And go. we thank you for it. <laughs> Absolutely. Go go relax and thanks again for your time, my man. Yeah, thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Casey.